Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy Legislation Podcast. This is Joy Mason and Triago, Managing Director of the Association for Data and Cyber Governance. We are the only professional association that combines all aspects of data and cyber governance for the governance, risk, and compliance professional. You can find us online at adcg.org. It gives us great pleasure to host this event led by two outstanding moderators, Jerry Buckley and Jody Westby. Jerry is a founder of Buckley LLP, a national financial services law firm based in Washington, D.C. Prior to entering private practice, he served as minority staff director of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee. Jody is CEO of Global Cyber Risk LLC and chairs the American Bar Association's Privacy and Computer Crime Committee. We have some really great guests lined up today and in the future, so please be sure to rate us and subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode. This is Jerry Buckley, and I am here with my colleague, Jody Westby. Today, we are going to try to look around the corner and explore issues associated with the implementation of privacy and data protection policy. The focus of most privacy legislation proposals is the articulation of the rights of individuals to control data about themselves. This includes first, controlling how data can be used or shared, and second, having assurance that their data in the hands of companies they do business with will be protected from unauthorized exposure or theft. But how will these legal protections be implemented? And do businesses, large and small, have the capabilities to implement new rights granted to consumers? Some state legislative proposals recognizing the cost of implementing data protection regimes that are called for by statute, those charges may be too expensive for smaller companies to undertake at this time. And so they have business size thresholds, de minimis standards where companies do not have to comply with the provisions of the statute. This is the case with respect to the California Consumer Privacy Act. But if privacy legislation gives individuals control over and legal protections for their data, it cannot very long exclude smallholders of data because first, the rights that run to individuals, not to data holders. And second, it would be a huge competitive disadvantage not to offer adequate data protection rights to your potential customers. This creates an anomaly. If your data should be protected and you should have the right to control how it is used, why does the size of the holder of your information make any difference? Believe me, we don't want to impose unsustainable burdens on small business who are the source of most of the jobs in our economy. If only larger companies protect data rights, individuals are granted those, who are granted those rights, it would seem, would gravitate toward those companies to the disadvantages of those who do not provide such protections. There is a further concern. Last week, we discussed the indissoluble link between privacy rights and protection of data from exfiltration through cyber attacks. And we talked about the growing threat from international criminals tacitly supported by state actors. Again, large businesses have not been successful in protecting against such attacks. What chance do smaller businesses have? And yet these are very real and existential threats to our digital economy and the individual companies, large and small, 
that make up our financial and commercial infrastructure. As Congress considers national privacy and data protection legislation, some questions that arise are these. Where should the responsibility for defining the protection of our data rights reside within the government, state or federal level, or both, at a new agency or at the FTC? What are your thoughts? <laughs> That's a nice multi-part question to start. So the responsibility for defining and protecting our data rights, I mean, well, that is, I think, first and foremost with the legislature to define what data rights that would be protected, but also not leaving aside, of course, the Supreme Court that has recognized a constitutional right to privacy. And so there's obviously, this isn't an answer where you say one or the other. Obviously, this is a, at least for this, a two-part answer of judiciary and legislature in analyzing what our data rights should be protected. But you know, we've seen at the state and federal level, states have been very active. We do have the Privacy Act of 1974, and that has been around since 1974, but it just applies to the federal government. And states have picked up and carried the ball since then. So this is a problem now with so much state involvement of where do the states fit in. If we completely preempt them, I think we're going to have some challenges from state attorney generals. And yet it doesn't make sense to continue to have a patchwork of 50 state laws that are increasingly their tiers now, like Illinois has its biometrics law and its breach law and California has, you know, its CCPA and breach laws. And so we really need to look at how to balance that also, then you ask about a new agency and defining and protecting our rights. So a new agency, the FTC, you asked, well, I think the FTC has done a very good job and they have done more to spur companies on to have enterprise cybersecurity programs than anything the government has done or anything that Congress has done just through their consent orders. So I'm a pretty big fan of FTC. I'm happy to keep responsibility there. I think they're pretty level in how they approach things. But I think the responsibility for defining and protecting, first and foremost, would fall to Congress. And that's going to be the problem. Will Congress do anything? Well, it is It is the issue, Jody. And, you know, I, like you, have a great respect for uh the leadership role that the FTC has played in dealing with privacy rights and cyber risk. But I don't think we can deny that despite their taking a leadership role, we are still a long way from resolving these issues. And in fact, we have worse and worse cyber attacks occurring, and uh, there are more and more concerns about the use of uh, data. And the FTC, we all know, has a, a mandate with somewhat limited powers. Those could be increased. And it is really an enforcement agency, not an agency that provides the tools that might be needed to deal with both cyber and privacy issues. I'll get into that a little bit later, but I think that 
we really do have to think about how is the federal government going to help businesses, not simply call them out or punish them for their bad behavior. I know we have our NIST standards and, of course, the ISO standards. There are standards being developed, but in terms of actually causing something to happen, it isn't happening. So I guess we have to ask, maybe it has to be a strongly enhanced FTC effort, or maybe it has to be moved elsewhere. At least that's my thought. And you're welcome to react. back a little bit on that, because the FTC has actually developed a number of tools for companies to use. So they've had business websites for small businesses on complying with privacy laws and, and meeting certain requirements requirements to help them understand what their obligations are. So I think that they have done a lot in trying to provide some at least internet available tools to help businesses understand privacy compliance obligations. Maybe the answer is better, more funding for them. I don't know. Oh, absolutely. If we are going to have the FTC in leadership role, I mean, we in prior podcasts, episodes, we've discussed the fact that Ireland has practically a thousand people in its privacy office and the FTC has somewhere between 50 and 100 uh, for the (laughs) United States. I mean, it is uh, clearly they will have to have more resources. And I think clearly they are the place where the knowledge and capability exists in the United States. I would not certainly dispute that, but I do think that more is going to be needed more provided by the federal government than just models and guidelines and you know how-to manuals. I think there's going to have to be a lot more if we're going to see this happen. Uh, so uh, where that resides, uh, who knows? Maybe at the FTC, but I think that is a that's yeah. a tough question. Now, uh, are we effectively implementing cyber hygiene? Clearly, no. But why not? Is the threat um, not obvious? So. I don't think people understand what cyber hygiene means. So to some people, that means cybersecurity awareness and teaching people how to behave in a secure manner in the workplace. But, you know, a lot of others say, no, 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 good cyber hygiene is, you know, where people are really following all the best practices that they need to follow to maintain, you know, security. And that's a very broad definition of of cyber hygiene. But if we ask, are we effectively implementing cyber hygiene? Under either definition, the answer is no, as you said. But why not? Well, again, it's a money thing and it's a lack of attention. Yes, the threat is obvious, but companies are simply refusing to spend the money. They hire the lawyers, they hire the accountants, they hire the security personnel to guard the the physical perimeters, but they just don't want to spend the money on cybersecurity programs. And if you don't have cybersecurity, you have no privacy. So there's, you know, a very real threat. We don't need the government to make the threat more obvious, but we clearly have companies who are choosing to not undertake best practices, to not ensure that they have operations that meet a standard. I remember way back when, when 
ISO standards and became such a prominent measure of excellence within companies. And it became a source of pride if a company was going to, they would actually post, we're meeting ISO standards. Do you ever see that? I mean, some companies will say, well, they, I have 27,001 certification from ISO for cybersecurity. To mean that doesn't mean much. It means something, but we've done assessments on a number of cybersecurity programs with 27,001 certifications that really just had mediocre security programs. But at least they're doing that. But for companies to have that good housekeeping seal of approval, to have that sense of pride. Remember after SOX when companies said, we need to comply with SOX requirements, Sarbanes-Oxley, even though we don't have to, and because it shows we're a grown-up company. Well, I don't know when that thinking is going to take over in the workplace among companies, because that's really what's needed. When we look at businesses, it's the incentive factor that they want to be big boys. They want to be considered a mature business that operates according to best practices, can be trusted in the marketplace. And there's no incentive. There's not anything to identify them, so they just don't do it. And so therefore, the cyber hygiene is just sort of a term that's tossed around, I think, in my industry, cybersecurity industry, probably more than even in privacy personnel. But yes, the threat is obvious, but we have failed in incentivizing companies to make them want to do that as a source of pride. Well, you know, Jody, whenever that happens uh, and there is a large threat to the national economy, usually at that point, there's an awareness that there is a need for mandatory requirements because if it's not being done, for instance, take 1930s, early 1930s. The banking industry was had lost confidence of the public. There were runs on banks. Right. There had been irresponsible behavior at some banks, and it was, of course, affecting all banks, even those that were responsible. So we instituted a Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and examinations at the federal level we took uh, strong measures to assure stability and public confidence was restored. Now, you know, the underpinnings of our economy, our digital economy at this point, that is the way forward. And we can't, it's equally as important as the financial stability of the country that we have cyber and, and data security. So what re- really strikes me as interesting is You know, when you ask executives, uh, so what keeps you awake at night? Well, first on the list, cybersecurity. Oh, I'm so concerned about it. Well, you've identified the fact that they may be concerned and tossing and turning, but when they get to work, they aren't doing anything about it. And so if that's the case, why are not leaders in the Senate and the House? And we've had some excellent, we had a wonderful discussion with uh, Congresswoman Dobene. But she is taking a lead. There are some others who are proposing things, but it is not risen to the point of being a national concern, despite these crippling and ever-increasing attacks on our uh, data infrastructure. We have, you know, we have a momentary 
flutter of activity. But really, the leaders of the House and Senate, the president and the administration, have not made this as high a priority as one would expect in light of the tremendous risk that's involved. So why do you think that is the case? Well, with Congress, it's a real puzzle at this point of what they're doing. I hesitate to say I I think I have an answer for that. I can share a thought. One, they're distracted right now with obviously the economy and the pandemic. And I have to agree that those two issues take priority at the moment. But cyber is very much up there on the list. I mean, if we look at the priority of key decision makers, cyber has been the number one position or in the top three for the past at least five years. And so it is clearly an issue that our companies are having to wrestle with and is a priority for them. But we've also seen from the attacks that we've had that is also a big problem for the federal government. So it's one thing, I mean, you know, we just had this executive order. So the government can come out and say, well, we just did this executive order. Yeah, they did the executive order. I mean, it falls short in many ways, but um, maybe that's a topic for another program. But they did an executive order, but it only applies to the defense contractors or the government contractors who are working for the federal government and the government agencies. Now, yes, that has been a long favored tool to jumpstart issues. Let's say if we make this applicable to all government contractors, then it'll jumpstart the idea for everybody else. So that is something that I think they're probably trying to do, but it also just puts an added burden in some respects on software companies that I don't think they really deserved it just because SolarWinds was lax in its cybersecurity. But the executive order, they can say the the administration can say, see, we're doing something. In fact, though, Jody, isn't that, I mean, how reactive? You have the Colonial Pipeline issue arise and, okay, now's the time to put out our executive order. And that, you know, is issued. It doesn't cover anything more than the government contractors. And it, it's a step in the right direction, but it is it appears to be much more reactive than proactive. Well, it was more reactive to solar winds, I think. And I'm not sure that all the measures in there were really a good idea. One thing is if you look at what's in the White House, and Newberger is terrific. You know, they have a couple of other good appointees there, but they're mainly NSA people. They were private sector people. And that's a gap. But but if we go back to Congress with the House and Senate, this may be an area that actually they could kind of bridge the waters on if they were just focused on it. We've heard from Representative Devaney, who's uh, clearly a leader in the, uh, leads the 100-person uh, New Democrat caucus. I think she could easily, uh, she should be able to find common ground with some uh, on the Republican side. And this could be a bipartisan effort. It certainly is. It's not the thing, the kind of thing that should divide the country on political grounds. It's something that is an urgent issue for everyone. Now, there can be, uh, I'm sure there are, there are those who are going to uh, be concerned about it, but I, I don't think this is a partisan issue. But, you know, you, you, my old Law school classmate Angus King is a senator from Maine. He was on the 
Solarium Commission. We had a guest, one of the Solarium Commission staffers. And we know that, you know, that was a bipartisan commission. But you just don't get the coverage in the media. You just don't get someone saying, oh, listen to that person. There's the leader. That's the one we should follow. It's just not happening. And, well, they uh, did, and they forgot about it. I mean, a lot, yeah. there's a lot of attention to the Solarium Commission, but then something else happened. And it's really like we run from theater to theater to watch the next movie. And when the next movie comes, we go, oh, that one's on? Okay, let's run over and watch that. And we just totally forget about the <laughs> other one we were watching. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's turn to another uh, question, which is, uh, what tools can the federal government provide to businesses to make compliance with privacy and data protection laws more feasible for companies large and small? We taught you referenced the FTCs providing guidance, but are there other tools that could be provided? I think so. I just want to add a thought, though, to our last discussion so we don't just end with a bunch of complaining. I think that what could help the Senate and the House and the administration prioritize this issue is if the business community would get their act together and say, this is what we need. Here's what we're willing to do. And here's what we need you to do. And here's what we need you to put funding. And that would go a long way. And if the consumer groups and everybody stood up and started being vocal, So I remember previous privacy discussions, and I especially remember the encryption discussion. So I'd say to all these organizations, since I used to head up domestic policy for the U.S. Chamber, I'd say, wake up and smell the coffee. Wake up and say something. I mean, get out there and start being vocal and demand that Congress and the administration address these in a way that's important to you. And that'll kickstart the conversation. And it will also bring us to the question you just asked me, which is what tools can the federal government provide to businesses to make compliance and privacy and data protection laws more feasible for companies large and small? And one is to be sensitive, as the states have tried to do, to the burden on small businesses. There are small businesses that primarily earn their revenue from the internet. And then there are others who are primarily more traditional small businesses on Main Street America. But the laws do have some consideration. So, for example, CCPA says that you have to be a for-profit entity doing business in California that collects or processes consumers' personal information and meets one of the following thresholds, $25 million in revenue. You annually buy, sell, receive, personal information of 50,000 or more consumers, households, or devices. So so you'd have a small business that maybe does business with more than 50,000 California consumers in a year. Hold on one second. It says four devices. So when you have more than one device, doesn't that count toward the 50,000? Well, anyway, we'll talk about that a little bit. Oh, that's I, I think that's a little... That's very interesting. Yes, it is an issue. And then they have a... Um, or more of its annual revenues from selling consumer personal information. Now, the California Privacy Rights Act that, you know, was passed with the ballot initiative, it's effective now, but it's not enforced until July 1 of 2023. They removed that device thing. That just has an annual gross revenues of 25 million, annually buys, sells, or shares the personal information of 100,000 or more consumers or households, and derives 50% 
and or more of its revenues from selling or sharing consumer information. Just one of those. Now, Virginia, they left out the revenue. They said if you have control or process personal data of at least 100,000 consumers annually, or you control or process personal data of 25,000 consumers and derive more than 50% of your revenue from the sale of personal data. So states are trying to come up with some levels that would make compliance reasonable for the small business person that is not really running a huge enterprise dealing with a lot of consumers within their state. That's at the state level. But, you know, we talked about briefly on a previous podcast, providing tax credits for companies that invest in cybersecurity. And I would say in cybersecurity or privacy programs, what makes the difference? But certainly, you know, they should they should offer some tax credits to companies. That's a huge incentive for companies. It's like giving them a half price sale or, or more. And I think that that would be something very, very incentivizing to companies. There are other things they could do, you know, awareness campaigns. Look what Malcolm Baldrige did with the Baldrige Award. That got companies so incentivized to be, you know, to receive an excellence award. Why can't we do something like that also? So there are things that we could do if we were just creative. I just don't feel like we've been creative about this at all. I certainly endorse most of uh, all of what you said. It is, uh, there is the, I raised earlier, um, opening part of this episode, the question of, if the rights are rights that individuals have, the idea that the size of the company they're dealing with makes a difference as to whether they have the rights is a, a little bit problematic in my view. But I do think, and it may be a competitive disadvantage to the smaller companies in the long run, but I do think that the idea of empowering the small companies with clear programs that they can implement and then providing them with the resources by way of tax credits to do it would go a long way. That has not been a, even though it's been discussed, it has not been a serious point made in the national discussion. And as you observed in our last podcast, we are in the process of rebuilding our infrastructure and we have to secure our cyber infrastructure and we need the resources to do it. Better to put those resources at the businesses where they will implement and give them the guidance that they need, it seems to me. And that, that is, you know, the, the 50 companies in the business roundtable uh, two years ago called upon Congress to do something. There are national efforts to... Uh, encourage policy change, but it isn't the top priority for any leading business leader that I am aware of. I can't say. For clarification, I think that the incentives should apply to all companies, not just small businesses. I'm sorry, I did not mean to apply. They don't have the resources as much as the larger companies, but it should be universal. Yes, exactly. So, You know, taking this to the point of the financial sector, they have a real opportunity here in being the leaders because they have the best programs to say everybody else needs to get on board and what can the 
FSISEC, what can the financial sector coordinating council do to help? And I know they've done a lot of this, like they were countering some specific threats and put together some tools and responses and shared those with other industry sectors. So it's a problem that's a public private sector problem. And it's clearly something that the associations can work on the other nonprofits, but as business leaders themselves can take initiatives and do things. But that is going to have to be targeted toward the House and the Senate. And to say to those leaders, you need to get in this game too. Well, with that, and given the fact that our time is out, uh, I think we should uh, finish this podcast and we uh, thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us this week on U.S. National Privacy Legislation. Make sure to visit our website, adcg.org, where you can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Cast, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in what you heard today, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the podcast, that would help us out too. Also, you might want to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Data and Cyber Governance Alert, which you can do right on our homepage. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode where we dig deeper into the possibilities of U.S. national privacy legislation.